Hey, we're starting a new series today, as Brooke has mentioned, and whether you have a word or you don't have a word or you have a resolution or you don't have one, I would hope that today, maybe today, you might find that word, you might find that resolution and make it. And let it be one of those that, that kind of God gives you in this, in this time together uh, as we share. Uh, because really, you know, we, we come to this time and I don't know, there's nothing magical about the new year. We get a new calendar, we, we change, we have, we have to keep scratching out 2018 because we keep writing that and putting 2019. And, you know, thank God for computers that they kind of intelligently figure out where we're going with the, uh, the date stamps now. But uh, we struggle in that area. But what's the big deal about a new year? It's really, it's in actuality just another day on the calendar, but we capitalize on it. And I want us to capitalize on it. That, that we come out of the holiday season and so many people make New Year's resolutions. Uh, according to the U.S. News and World Report, they make their New Year's resolutions based on holiday remorse. And that literally they will set their New Year's resolutions, but by February, 80% of those will be in the tank. And I think, why is that, that we come out of the holiday remorse, uh, you know, maybe we overate, overspent, overtraveled, we're exhausted from a, and we've had time off. Again, that, that, that blows my mind. We take vacation time or we give extra days off and people come back more tired. It's like, man, just keep working or something like that. I don't know what it is about the, but we go into that kind of, and we just kind of throw caution to the wind. And we come out and say, I'm going to live different next year. In this uh, U.S. uh, News and World Report article, it used a phrase that I've never heard before. It says, we throw off all restraint while indulging in Bacchanalian impulses. I had to look up Bacchanalian impulses. I'd never used that in my life. And it means to be characterized by given to drunkenness or rivalry. I would not, hopefully, hopefully that didn't describe your Christmas holiday, but if you're a Bacchanalian or whatever in your conduct, then maybe you do need to make some New Year's resolutions. Maybe you ate like a Bacchanalian or whatever that is. And, uh, but whatever, we come to this time and we make this New Year's resolution, but sometimes it doesn't stick. 80% of the people, it doesn't. It seems to fade off fairly quickly. And I think it's because we have a vision for what we want to be, the different us that we want to see, the less of us maybe that we want to have, whatever it may be, but we don't have a plan to get there. And we don't have a plan to get there. When we don't have a plan to get there, we literally, our, our vision for what we want to be just is a dream. It's a pipe dream. It never really becomes a reality. Well, a word that if you were looking for a word, it might be the word margin. Because if there's anything that I feel less and less that I have, and that's control over my life, Control over my time, control over my money, control over my thoughts. Just to have white space in my life where I'm not getting texts, I'm not getting notifications. I, I can turn the world off and kind of uh, get some some time alone to kind of go inside and listen to the voice of God. It's really hard to find. And a lot of that is because we lack margin in our life. And sometimes we're so stressed out, we got to work an extra job. We extend ourselves so far that we got to go find extra money because, again, we don't have margin. There's certain areas of our life that we just kind of overcrowd, crowd in, start writing in the margins of our life and to where it looks a little sloppy when you look at our lives. Margin gives us boundaries. It keeps the world from encroaching up on us if we set good margins, good boundaries, 
But it also keeps us from getting sloppy and writing in the margins of our life. So it helps us, it helps us, and it helps the world to stay out. Margin gives you life, and it doesn't take life from you. It gives you air to breathe, the ability to stop and smell the roses, to take a, take a, a, a walk and, and, and enjoy the walk and not be thinking about what you're missing because you're on the walk, to be able to enjoy sunsets and, and to be able to be fully present with the person. Doesn't it drive you crazy when you're talking with somebody, you've carved off time into your life and you've set aside some time for coffee or lunch, but yet they're doing this right there on their phone? And hold, I, I'm here and they're not here, but you're take, give, taking my time and you're giving it to someone else. I find myself doing that. It's because we don't have margin. Everything, boundaries are gone. But what margin does, margin is the difference between having margin and not having margin is the difference between rest and exhaustion. And some of us live in an exhaustive state of mind and body. It, the difference between breathing and suffocating is a person who has margin. Intentional living versus accidentally living. Basically, accidentally living would be basically the world is telling you how to live, where to go, where to be, what to do, where to spend, what to, what to invest your time and thoughts into. The difference of a person who has margin who doesn't have margin is a person who has, lives God's perfect will versus humankind's trial and error, error approach where we're literally living it out day to day, living, maybe we say it living in the moment, but really we're just living from one situation, one email, one, one crisis to the next crisis. I want to give a definition for margin as we start and be one of those that we're going to just kind of keep coming back to. And I want you to be asking yourself this question and, and be looking at yourself in, in light of maybe this considered a three-legged stool, if you will. But margin is this. It is the space between our load and our limits, our load and our limits and the Lord and his leading. And, and our load is what we're carrying, what's weighting us down, the responsibilities of life that we have as a parent, as an adult, as adulting out there, on the job, on the clock, what, what we sign up for in extracurricular activities, what, the traveling teams that we get a part of, the everything that we take on that fills up our lives. I woke up the other night and... I don't know, one or two in the morning, one of those wake-up calls from God, and just had all these things that I, that I had not taken care of. And, and they were bothering me because I hadn't taken care of them, but I didn't have time to take care of them the day before. And I got up and I just went out and I wrote down 17 plates that I have spinning right now or that, on that morning particularly. 17 plates. I can't manage 17 plates. That's the load that I have allowed to take on in my life. Our load versus our limits. There's, there comes a point when plates begin to fall. There comes a point when the bank account says zero and you start getting little notifications in the mail that there's insufficient funds. Then you've encroached on your margin. Then you've encroached on boundaries. There's a time whenever your calendar is so full, your life is not enjoyable. You cannot be fully present with those that are around you. How did we get here? And how do we get out of here? The third part of that is not only knowing our load, but assessing our limits, what we can handle, but it's also listening to where the Lord is leading. Because here's a life principle for you, and you need to get this down big, plain, and straight in our life, is that you have just enough time to do God's will every day with grace and truth. 
And if your world is spinning out of control and you're no longer able to live with grace and live with truth and you're having to compromise truth to get things done and you're having to compromise and tell fibs to get the, to get the job done. If you're having to, you're losing your temper with your kids and your spouse and you're no longer living in grace and you, you, there's something out of culture. I don't know what it is and I'm not going to point fingers because I have to point fingers back at myself. But I have just enough time in every single day of my life to live God's will in grace and truth. And what I have to do is to figure out the difference between the two. And how do I know this? How can I truly say that that is, that is a true statement? Is because I know this, that God's calling and God's plan and God's will for my life is one that is not going to weigh me down and overload me. It's not going to eat up all the margin of my life. It's not going to cause me to compromise truth and not be able to give grace. In fact, the way Jesus said it, he said, if you're carrying that kind of a heavy load, you need to come to me. You need to come to me. And you need to carry, you need to carry my, my yoke. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light doesn't mean we're not going to carry a, a burden. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have responsibilities. It doesn't mean that we're going to be free, free and clear from having a leadership in our life, having a yoke on us. But it does mean this, that whenever we are living out his will, when we are, we are living with that margin, that we will have the ability to say, I, my, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I can bear up underneath this by God's grace and his truth. I can live out his will. Dr. Richard Swanson, who I will reference a lot in this series because he's written a lot on it. He's a a medical physician. He said this about um, our culture and the margin and the weights that we're under. He said, to be healthy, we require margin in at least four areas, emotional energy, physical energy, time, and finances. Conditions of modern living, however, have drained these margins rather than sustaining them. In emotional energy, seldom have we been so stressed, so alone, so exhausted in spirit. In physical energy, we are overfed, overactive, or underactive, and sleep deprived. In time, our clocks dominated, dominated uh, nanoseconds. Culture leaves no wheezing and worn out, leaves us wheezing and worn out. And in finances, universal indebtedness makes, us, uh, makes our societal landscape look like a fiscal Gettysburg. Pretty descriptive to describe the domains that he has identified. I've identified five domains, and I've done a lot of research in trying to figure out well, how many domains are there in our life. And really, I kind of landed on this, and I've asked you for the past couple of weeks if you've been with us since Christmas Eve, and that is to really do your own assessment, your own audit, if you will, of your life and how well you are managing in these five key domains of our life. Now, again, you might add a six, you might take out one, you might merge one. However you want to do it, figure it out. You're going to have to do some hard work on yourself. Otherwise, you will continue to live in the red zone. And you can only live in the red zone. You can only have 17 plates spinning for so long. You can only live like that for so long before something crashes and we have no control over what will crash. It could be our marriage. It could be the thing that we love the most. 
It could be a relationship. It could be our career. It could be our integrity that takes a lifetime to build with only one bad decision to lose. Look at your life and ask yourself these four helpful questions about your life. And, and, and you can do this on your own. And I'm going to encourage you to do that this week. If you haven't done that, I've spent quite a bit of time over the past two weeks just doing myself. And we'll save that for uh, conversations as we go along. But let's take our Bibles and let's find the book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes. And as we look at this passage, you'll, you'll find real quickly that... Uh, Solomon is the writer here. He'll identify himself as the writer, uh, as the son of David, the King David. And as he does, he will immediately depress you. All right, so feel good about today. Feel good about the next several months. No, really, what you're doing is you're getting a very authentic Solomon here. He's not posing. One one, uh, writer actually referred to the book of Solomon or book of Ecclesiastes as, as um, kind of an alien. In all the Bible, it's kind of an alien out there because it is such a tone that doesn't even belong in the Bible. It's, it's not, it doesn't even fit a lot of the genres. You're getting a very authentic uh, King Solomon here as he writes. Now, you've got to understand, again, who's Solomon? He's the second king or the third king in the, in the monarchy or in, 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 the, in, the, in the kingdom of, of Israel. He is the son of, he's the second in the monarchy uh, of David, King David. King David, of course, was the greatest king ever of Israel. But right after him, the most wealthiest king, the most successful, successful king, the king that had more written out there as a published author than any other king ever since them, since the beginning of authoring and writing and kings and so forth, this man, Solomon. And he has written extensively and we've got a few of his writings. We've got the, the book of Song of Solomon. It's a book on marriage. I'm looking at and praying about right now in the fall doing a series through the book of Song of Solomon. And it is not for the faint at heart. It is PG-13 for adult eyes only almost. In fact, if you were a, a boy growing up in a Jewish home, you were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until you had gone through the bar mitzvah. That's how detailed about marriage it is. All right, that's in the fall. Proverbs is probably his most well-known writing. He writes a couple of chapters in the Psalms, uh, in, in the latter part of the Psalms. But actually, Proverbs is probably his most well-known. Ecclesiastes is kind of this, where does that fit in, again, book. But Proverbs is this book of wisdom. We only have a third of the wisdom of all, of all that Solomon ever wrote. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs. There's about 900 of them in the book of Proverbs. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs. And we only have about 900 of them. So if you think about it like that, there's so much wisdom he has. It's all been condensed down. We have a lot of it right here, but we don't even have all of it. But then you come to the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have a man at the latter part of his life writing his memoirs. Starting off so well, doing so well in the beginning. In fact, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you want to read the history? Start in 1 Kings chapter 3 and you'll read through the history of, of, of this great king and, and his success and, and how he was humble about his kingship and about how he wanted, he wanted wisdom and how he's this great godly man. But then you come all the way to chapter 11 of 1 Kings and you'll find how his heart begins to turn away from God, turn away from listening to his own wisdom. And the wisdom that God had given him. And I think it's a very key principle for us to learn here. 
When you think about Solomon and his writing and Solomon and his successes and his authorship and his platform and his influence and all that he had going out there, he was successful. But listen to this. Your success may become your greatest failure. Your success may become your greatest failure. If you're not careful in staying humble in that walk with God. I want to take a survey because when I look at Solomon, I look at the life of Solomon, I see a lot of us in this room. We are successful. Northwest Arkansas has a success level in this corporate world that we live in and all the people that have moved into this area. And some of y'all have moved into this area only because of your corporate uh, transfers. You're here because of your corporate transfers. You, you, you have moved here because of that. You're, you're in, a, in some kind of progression format of, of your company where you're growing and you needed to move here so you could service the largest corporation in the world. And you're here because of that. And I want, I, I want you to answer this question. Does this description fit you? Does this description, are you a busy corporate climbing family? If, 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 any, if two of those words describe you, I want you to answer yes to that. We're going to take a phone survey, so take out your phones. You're going to type in 22333. Three. You're going to send it to that address, and you're going to type in the words GPCNWA. So text that message to that number. And if you can answer to two out of those four words describing you, let me break them down. Busy. Do you have a full plate, a full schedule? Are you got traveling teams? You got extracurricular activities your kids are doing. You're chasing them around. You're, you're involved with them. Uh, do, do you find yourself going to work when the sun is uh, down and coming out of the building when the sun is still down? And it's not because you went in and walked back out. Uh, it's because you were there all day long. Busy corporate. Are you working for a corporate a corporation that is servicing a Walmart organization? Or maybe you moved here not to service them, but you moved here because of a corporate leadership change and development process in your life. And are you climbing? You say, hey, I'm here for a while, but I don't know how long I'm, I'm going to be here. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm climbing up a ladder. I have visions for my future. I have a plan. I have a growth plan. If that describes you right there, and if you have a family. Now, maybe not all those describe you, but maybe two of those describe you. If two or more describe you, put yes. If one, only one describes you, then the answer would be no. Answer that, and we'll just see who our people are in this room today. And you know people that are right now disillusioned, put, put out and tired in their own life. And I'm going to encourage you to grab some of these invite cards when you leave today and invite some of the people that are overextended in their life. Next week, we're going to be talking about how Solomon pursued happiness. And we're going to talk about the pursuit of happiness. And we're going to learn from a man who did just that and where it got him. So be thinking about that as you're inviting your friends uh, to come along. But when you come to chapter 1, you come to a statement that he's going to make, and I don't want you to miss it. He's going to say it a couple of times in chapter 1. He's going to say it three different times in chapter 2. He's going to describe life as nothing more than striving after the wind. The title of our message today is Waking Up Exhausted. Some of you today wake up exhausted on Monday morning before the week ever begins. You didn't sleep well at night. 
You got more mail in your inbox today than you did on Friday when you left the office. You're not going to be able to get through all that and all the demands of your life. And you are literally waking up exhausted. You are what Solomon might say. You're striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to wrestle the wind, catch the wind? The wind's blowing you. The wind's blowing your hair. The wind's blowing things out of your hair. Or you're chasing the wind. You want to get a tailwind behind you, but you have more wind in your face. And that's the way Solomon describes his life. Three reasons that people wake up exhausted. One, don't miss it. Number one is you have nothing left for what matters most. You have nothing left for what matters most. If that describes you that at the end of the day, I mean, I come in, I give my very best to the job, I give my very best, I, 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 I do all I, I can do on the job to, 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 to be EQ and to have a good emotional intelligence, but when I get in the door, I just fall apart. You have no margin left in your life. You, you, you come in and you, 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 you're extended out and you just, you just come in and you just want to fall down. And there's nothing left to give in your day. But yet the people that you love the most get the least from you. They get the leftovers of your life, of your thoughts. Whenever we don't make time and space for what matters most, we will wake up one day, and I don't know when that day we'll wake up, and we'll say, everything I've been about is nothing but vain emptiness. Now, maybe you'll not grow up like Solomon and you'll write a a memoir like Solomon, but hopefully you'll wake up one day and you'll think, you know what? I have been climbing a ladder only to find my ladder leaning against the wrong wall. And what I need to be doing is focusing on this wall over here for what really matters most. I need to make sure I'm growing up that ladder, climbing up that ladder. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. He introduces himself. Now, notice the word that he's going to use here. He's going to use it 39 more times. 39 times he's going to use this one word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Preacher means teacher, means philosopher. And he really takes on a, 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 a kind of a Socrates approach to this, asking lots of questions. In fact, you'll end up reading the book of Ecclesiastes with more questions than answers. But you're getting authentic Solomon. He's looking at his life. He's looking in the mirror of his life. He's looking at the end of his life and all the successes of his life. And the way he sums up his life, it's all vanity. Vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 39 times he's going to use that word to describe in 12 chapters what he describes life is about. There's a lot of people who feel about life in a similar vein. Shalom Alekim, a Jewish writer, said it like this, life is a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Doesn't that sound beautiful? American poet Carl Sandburg said it like this, compares life to an onion. You peel it off layer at a time and sometimes you weep. British playwright George Bernard Shaw said it's a series of inspired follies is what life is. Matthew Arnold in his poem, he said it like this, most men eddy about here and there, eat and drink, chatter and love and hate, gather and squander, are raised aloft and hurled into the dust. 
striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then they die. Again, morbid, but hang with me on this. Because this, these are people who at some point do an audit of their life. And they're going, you know what? My life is a blister, a boil on a blister. Or my life is this emptiness. That's what Solomon's writing about. Teenagers, listen to this right now. Set some, some parameters for your life. Set some margin for your life, some boundaries and purpose for your life that you're not going to live a life of aimlessness. Irma Bombeck said this, if life is a bowl of cherries, why do I always get the pits? Something to think about. And you read Solomon's writings, he talks about all is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And then he goes to verse 3 and he says this, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If your life is the sum total of your position on your job, if your life is the sum total of your pay band, if your life is the sum total of your career path, really? Is that what, we're, is that what it is? What do, what do we gain from all the toil of life? And see, what we do is we put so much of our life into our toiling, into our working. But is that, what are we gaining from that? At the end of our life, what will be the sum total of our life? The message paraphrases this, this verse. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone. In the margin audit that I'm asking you to do, when I originally found the, the, the circle and the, and, the, and the five domains, it actually had career as one of those domains. And I changed it intentionally to vocation because there is a difference between a career and a vocation. Some of you are living a career, but you're not living your vocation. A vocation comes from the Latin word meaning call. You mean there's actually, God might actually be a part of this? Yeah, God might actually be a part of your vocation. But if you're just living your career and thinking about career pathways and thinking about stuff like that, then you're just living for the boss. You're living for the company. You're living for the bottom line. But are you living out your vocation? You're calling. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be on a stage preaching and teaching and all that kind of stuff. But just think about your life and the life that you are living. Are you living out a vocation? I think what, what Solomon's looking here is he's looking at this kingship, that his crown that he's been wearing. He's saying, what is the gain of this? Yes, I may be the greatest, most powerful, most influential king that's ever walked the earth. But at the end of the day, he lays his head down at night and he goes to sleep and he wakes up exhausted. It's all vain. If this is all there is, what we need to do, listen to this, make sure that the load you are bearing is the load you should be carrying. Can I say that to you again? Make sure that the load you are bearing is the load you should be carrying. Did God call you to the, How much is God a part of the conversation of your life? Think, Mike, all work is vain. Solomon said it. He's the king. He's the writer. He's the, he's the wise guy out there, right? So he says everything is vain. So I'm just going to get up and I'm going to go to my vain job and I'm going to make my vain living and I'm going to push my vain product and I'm going to make sure my vain stuff is on the vain shelf and students are going to go to vain school tomorrow and they're going to take their vain exams and they're going to write their vain papers. No. 
If you're living out your calling, it's not in vain. Paul gave us hope when 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, Your labor is not in vain. But notice that last three words, in the Lord. In the Lord. If I am living out my vocation, my career, for myself and for what my career will give me, or am I living it out because God has called me to this, and if he's called me to this, then my, my labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I need to make sure that I have made, that I'm carrying a load, I'm bearing a load that God wants me to bear, that he's called me to carry. Because I have just enough time in every single day of my life to do God's will with grace and truth. A theme verse that I said from the beginning back in December is the verse that we're going to read maybe every week till we get it down. In fact, if you want to memorize a verse this week, here's a good one. Ecclesiastes 7.29. I want us to read it out loud together. I want you to hear it with me. I want us to say it together. Let's say it. Ecclesiastes 7.29, it says this, God made us plain and simple, but we have made ourselves very complicated. I wonder if it's because we're not making space for what matters most. We're living careers and not vocations. I challenge you to do an audit of your life. I challenge you next week to read ahead to chapter 2, Ecclesiastes. This is going to take time on your part, but if you will do the work over the next three months, I'm praying at the end that you will be able to write your own life manifest, that I'm going to make margin and I'm going to protect margin because margin margin is about boundaries and I'm going to have good boundaries in my life so that I will not live in vain. I only get one of these babies called life and I want to make sure I live it to the best. In fact, I want to encourage you also, you see the party happening out in the gallery? I want to encourage you to make space for a group. We have uh, 13 new groups forming just for this series, just for this study. It's not going to be a study through Ecclesiastes, but it's going to be studied through a complementary study on, it, on its own, dealing with making space in our life. 13 new groups, five groups already existing that have space in them available And so when you leave this room, I encourage you to make space to give yourself time and not have time and life taken from you and say, I'm going to carve out this time slot. I'm going to be a part of this process so that at the end of three months, at the end of my life, I will say, I will not have worked in vain. Number one, if we do not make space, we will wake up exhausted. Number two, you're chasing the high. When we live chasing a high, we will wake up exhausted. I've never done heroin, but I have heard and talked to people who have. And the way I understand this phrase, chasing the high, is that whenever you do heroin, the high that you get the first time you take heroin is a high that you will never get again. And you will spend the rest of your time taking more and more heroin, more and more, spending more and more, living more and more of your life to chase the high of that drug. That's not much different in a more domesticated way that we live out our lives chasing the high of something. 
One, one person in our church who's working through their own addictions said it to me like this, who was struggling not with heroin but with prescription drugs. I said, Mike, one pill is too much and one is never enough when you're an addict. When I think about our all-consuming culture, I think about the struggles that we face in our culture where we're a consumer-based culture, where we just can't get enough, buy enough, spend enough. We buy things we don't want with money. We don't have to impress people we don't like, and we live out that kind of life. Consuming, chasing the next high. And when we do that, we will never, ever get there completely. So what do we do? We fill up all the space of our life because we only have so much space. We fill up all the money of our life because we only have so much money. We have to fill it all up at the time of our life. We only have so much. We fill it all up chasing it. And what people will do is they turn into consumers and that's what they're addicted to. People are tired and frazzled, Dr. Richard Swanson said. People are anxious and depressed. People don't have the time to heal anymore. There's a psychic inability in our day that perverts peace, that prevents peace from implanting itself very firmly in the human spirit. What have we uh, uh, in this brand new disease? Look with me, verse 7 and 8. And you find Solomon here, and he uses the metaphor of water. Water in a stream, water in a river, water in a river heading to an ocean, to a sea. And there's never, ever going to be filled up. He's using this metaphor here. In verse 7, he says, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. It's like, have you ever tried to hold water? <laughs> you, you grab water and you think you got it and it slips through your fingers. He said, there's, there's water in the stream and you reach down and you try to grab it. And there's, there's water and it just keeps flowing and gets out of the ocean and you, you can never fill it all up. There's never enough water. He's talking about this, this endless chasing the wind. I can never get enough water. And then he says, and the sea is never full. And the place where the streams flow, their flow again, it just continues to flow all night long, 24-7. It never stops. It never turns off. And then he goes on. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing we never have enough. And what Satan does is he steps into our life and he steals joy from us. And we never have enough and we continue to chase and we become weary and we never get satisfied. And Jesus said, as Satan takes our lives, Jesus says, I want to give you life. The thief comes to steal, to take, to kill, to take, to destroy, to tear down. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan wants to rob your life, fill up every crevice of your life with stuff and frustrations and stresses. And Jesus is wanting to give you life, give it to you abundantly. Now, what does this mean to you and me? Because some in this room, listen right now, have never entered into a relationship with Jesus. You've just been this cultural Christian on the perimeter for a lot of your life. And unless you know Jesus in a personal, intimate way, you will be chasing water, 
trying to grab water and it's just continuing to flow and you will never get enough in this world to satisfy a deep longing that Jesus wants to satisfy in you. And the best thing you could do today is to give your life to Jesus. And right where you're at, you can say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. But there's another response in this room. Some have allowed the relationship with Jesus, never have allowed the relationship with Jesus to transform them. They, they again, have accepted the idea of Jesus and want Jesus, but they've never allowed him to transform their life. They continue to chase so many other things. They come in and dabble in Jesus on Sunday, might attend a Bible study during, on Monday and Tuesday, but it does, Jesus has not transformed their life. You wake up tired, you wake up exhausted when you make life about you, number three. When we make life about us, knowledge is power, right? That's what we say in our culture. It was true in, in, in Solomon's culture for sure. Knowledge, man, I tell you what, you cannot talk about water and talk about ever flowing, talk about never getting it, talk about it's a sea and it never fills up. It's, that's the way knowledge is. The newest data says that the world has generated more information in the past three years than in the previous 5,000 years. Think about that. World Future Society estimates that the human knowledge will double in 20, every 23 days by the year 2020. There are 62,000 voices, books being written every year and voices that are being declared out there. The competitive edge of our society today is information and speed. Think about King Solomon. The queen of Sheba came and consulted with King Solomon. He never, he had so much wisdom and so much knowledge. He had so much power and so much. And he began with so humble a focus on, I want to be the best king for you, God, to I want to be the most powerful, influential king for me. He turned the focus upon him. We'll see this especially next week, but I got to point it out to you because in a matter of two verses, in verse 16 and verse 17, He uses the personal pronoun, I, me, my, myself, seven times. Solomon lived for Solomon at the end of his life. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were ever, uh, who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. Knowledge may be power. But Solomon realized when it was all about him, it was nothing but striving after the wind. Waking up exhausted day after day. When I compare Solomon to David, his daddy, there's a little bit of a difference. The way Solomon sums up his life in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 17, life is striving after the wind. What does David say? He said, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Compare and contrast those two responses. 
Solomon, I'm doing this. It's for me. I'm the most powerful. I'm the most influential. It was about me, 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 myself, and I. And what he was influencing. And he couldn't get enough influence. He couldn't get enough knowledge. But what does David model for him? And somehow from one generation to the next, he forgot what daddy did. Daddy said at the beginning of this chapter, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. See, David was about he. Solomon was about me. And when life is about you, you will wake up exhausted. And at the end of the life, at the end of your days, at the end of your moment, at the end of this season, you'll look back at yourself and say, man, what a wasted life. Is it about you? Because margin is the space between the load and our limits, the Lord and his leading. Is it about you and what you want in your five-year plan? So I took my journal here, and I'll close with this. I took my journal, and since Christmas Eve, I have been writing my four helpful lists about my own life and just the four quadrants of my life, the, uh, the five quadrants of my life and the four questions about my life. And I can tell you what, to this morning, I was still writing and still evaluating about what's working in my life, what's not working in my life, what's confusing in my life, what's missing in my life. And in these areas, I have realized, man, I got some things, I got, about, I got the bull by the horns. But I got some things that I'm missing. And God led me to this book in Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 to 41. And this is what I want to challenge you with today. Let us examine our lifestyles. Let us examine our lifestyles. Let us put them to the test. And let us turn back to the Lord. Let us examine let us test and let us turn back. Let's learn from Solomon and all of his successes. And when he comes to the end of it, he says, it's emptiness. It wasn't about some of the things that he made his life about. And maybe we can make more space in our life if we would take time to examine our lifestyles, put them to the test and turn back to the Lord. And there's some ways in my life that I have already started turning back to the Lord. There's some of those 17 plates. I don't have 17 plates anymore. I still have about 13 plates. But I've said no to some plates that I had spinning because they weren't the most important plates. They were all good plates, but they weren't the most important. Would you bow your heads with me? We want to give you space in this space to examine yourself, your lifestyle, to listen. Am I really about what is the most important of life? 
Or is my life about the vain, empty, shallowness of this world? Am I chasing the high? Whatever that high is. Have I made it about me? My success, my influence, my power. Father, in this space, speak. And speak clearly, Lord, that if anybody in this room needs to give their life to you, help them to know that is where we start. Saying yes to you, Jesus. Do your work in this space in the space of our life.